Thank you very much, Andrew. It's a joy to be back with you in uh, Hamilton Baptist, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with you some stuff which I hope you'll find interesting, maybe a little bit challenging, but I hope you'll be able to engage with it. I'd like us to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 30 down to the end of verse 44. And the chapter is very interesting. Uh, it's in the early part of the chapter, we read that uh, Jesus sends out the twelve on their first missions trip. And then there's a section that tells us about the beheading of John the Baptist. And then we come to this section where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Reading from verse 30. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat... He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the, gra on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties taking the five loaves and two fish. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Well, that's a very well-known passage of Scripture. I, I retired almost uh, two years ago, and I'm really loving retirement. It's just great. I don't have any deacons' meetings to go to or elders' meetings. That's, I shouldn't be saying that. Perhaps I don't mean anything uh, about your elders or deacons at all. But just life without committees is wonderful. Well, one of the privileges that I enjoyed over the years was uh, conducting weddings. We uh, had the privilege of having a number of students with us in, in Findlay. And uh, I think one year I, I conducted 17 weddings, which I thought was quite a lot. And the wonderful thing about weddings is that brides are always beautiful. I've never seen a bride who isn't beautiful. And they would stand in front of me facing each other because they weren't saying their vows to me but to each other. And I would ask them questions and I would just watch the, their faces uh, as the emotion and the joy was just radiating from them. And I would ask the question of the groom, will you love her? And then I would ask the bride, 
Will you love him? What a great question to ask. But isn't it true that there's a huge amount of confusion about love and what love is? I went to Google and I typed in my search bar, love is, and a number of things came up. Love is being helpful and not scornful. Do you think that's an adequate definition of love? And then there's another one. Um, Love is having someone to hug. Well, that sounds kind of nice, but is that an adequate? Is that what love is, do you think? Uh, and then there was another one. Uh, someone who makes you laugh more and worry less. Well, that's nice in a marriage, but is that what love is? I, I don't think so. And then just one more, which I really liked, because it says this, his warm legs to put your cold feet on. Uh, and I can see a lot of husbands here kind of uh, relating to that. So there is a lot of confusion uh, about what love is. And in the run-up to uh, a wedding, we used to sit down with the bride and groom-to-be, and we would talk to them about the shape of the service and the kind of the vows they wanted to, to repeat. Sometimes they uh, learned their own vows. They wrote their own vows, and the medics particularly used to like to memorize the vows which was always a worry for me. I remember one occasion, uh, one person wanted to write their own vows, and they thought uh, that the purpose of the vow was to express love in a hundred different ways. But I had to say, no, the purpose of the vows was to make a promise and not just simply to express love. And then we got to the bit about what would you like to read through the service? Perhaps there's a passage of Scripture that's really meaningful to you. And sometimes they would say, well, can you help us? Uh, or occasionally they would say, well... Um, uh, perhaps we can read the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and that's always appropriate. And when I read that, I always started with chapter 12, because it says at the end of chapter 12, Paul writes, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And that's a phrase that we ought to hang on to. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so he says, listen, love is the most excellent way. And three times he uses the expression, if I don't have love, or if you don't have love, then you're just like a big noise that passes. You, you are nothing, and you gain nothing. So he talks about the importance of love. And he goes on uh, to, to say some rather beautiful things in verse 4 to verse uh, 7. He says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now, that actually isn't a definition of love. What Paul was doing was he was writing to a church and he was addressing live circumstances and situations. If you read through the, the epistle, you'll see that they were being impatient with one another. So Paul says, hey, listen, love is patient. They were being unkind to one another. So Paul says, hey, love, love 
is kind. Love is kind. In fact, if there was one thing the Corinthians needed, it was more of the love of Jesus. Because if you read the epistle, you'll see that they were sharply divided over theology, over practice, over social class, over spiritual gifts. Some said they followed Paul. Others followed Peter or Apollos. Um, And they were saying, my apostle's better than your apostle. And there were a small group of them said, well, actually, we follow Jesus. So there was tension in the church spiritual one-upmanship and what they really needed to learn was more of the love of Christ. Now we tend to read this passage and enjoy happy thoughts about love but I have to tell you I don't know about you but I find this passage quite scary. Why? Because it parades in front of, in front of us a standard of love that I just don't think we're able to meet. Do you know how many times in the New Testament we're told to love each other? Any ideas? How many times does it tell us? Come on, this is Hamilton Baptist. You guys have a reputation. How many times does it say that we have to love each other? Have a guess. (laughs) Eleven times. It tells us eleven times that we have to love each other. Now, there's a little phrase in this that I want to focus on uh, this morning that I I think is quite interesting and helpful. It's verse 5, and it says, love is not easily angered. Interesting that Paul tells us what love does and what love doesn't do. And it says love is not easily angered, and it's rendered differently in different versions. Another version says it is not irritable or resentful. Love is not irritable or resentful. So I want to ask you, do you ever get grumpy or irritable? Yeah? Maybe I shouldn't ask you, but ask the person you live with. Well, I can tell you that my wife and I used to drive down to the the church in Mary Hill, down the Mary Hill Road, and it was a busy road, and there was a bus lane. They weren't supposed to drive in the bus lane unless you were a taxi driver. So my wife and I would drive down, slow, stop, start, and... And the, the taxi driver would come up on the inside, but just where the taxi lane, the bus lane ended, there was a car parked, and there was a gap in front of me. So as I became aware of this guy coming, I would kind of put my foot down just a little bit, so to, just to keep it a small gap, and my wife would look at me. And then she would say to me, could you ask him to an alpha course? And it wasn't the taxi driver that made me irritable. It was what my wife said to me because I knew she was right and I, I was wrong. It's not a good thing to be grumpy. Do you ever get irritable or ticked off? Irritability is anger's trigger finger, a spiritual readiness to get angry. And I think that you and I need to learn to love the way Jesus loves because love doesn't get irritable. And it doesn't get angry. Now we read that wonderful chapter, a part of it, in Mark chapter 6. And I, I want to think about the context for a moment or two. Do you remember that Jesus had sent out uh, the disciples on their first missions trip? 
and they'd had a most interesting experience, and uh, I think they came back, and they were really excited to tell Jesus all the things that had happened. They'd seen people healed. They'd seen, uh, seen uh, people released from uh, control from evil spirits, and they were just bursting to tell Jesus all that had happened. And verse 30 uh, tells us that the apostles gathered round and reported to him all they had done and, th- and taught. Now, I suspect that the apostles were pretty tired because it had been a busy time for them. But our Lord was so caring, because that's his nature, that he took note of of what was going on. Because it says in verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Isn't that interesting? He took note that they didn't even have time to stop for lunch. They didn't have time to eat. They were so busy. And even today in churches, there's always more to do, isn't there? We have a tendency to do more than we can do well. So there's always, we're always looking for volunteers to do stuff. And sometimes we're so busy, we're running to stay still. Maybe you heard of the little poem. Mary had a little lamb, it was given her to keep, but then it joined the local church and died from lack of sleep. (laughs) Well, it's a wonderful thing to be busy. It's a wonderful thing to be busy. But we need to be busy doing the things that God wants us to do, and not just busy doing a whole load of things. So Jesus saw that the disciples were hungry they hadn't time to eat and he suggested that they uh, come apart with him uh, and have a rest and at that point it's kind of hard for us not to be just a little bit jealous I guess of uh, Philip and Bartholomew and the arrest of the apostles because they had this wonderful privilege of going to one side with Jesus to rest for a while. But things didn't go quite the way they hoped. Jesus was, of course, the most popular man in Israel at that time, and there was a constant demand uh, for his teaching and healing ministry, and people followed him the way the paparazzi follow the film stars, without the cameras, of course. Uh, And when they looked across the lake and they saw the sail of the boat on the blue sea, they hurried along the shoreline and reached the place where the boat would land before uh, the boat landed. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, and many who saw them leaving recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns, and got there ahead of them. Wow. Well, that was, that was what happened. And I suspect that the hungry disciples were a little bit disappointed to see this big crowd of people gathered on the shoreline. Verse 34 tells us that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. The teaching session went on and on and on. And I suspect the longer the teaching session went on, uh, the more uh, irritated and hungrier and wearier the disciples became. Look at verse 35. By this time it was late in the day. 
So we don't know what time they returned from their missions trip. We don't know if it was lunch they missed or breakfast. But here it was at the end of the day, and they were tired and hungry, so they went to Jesus and said, this is a remote place, and it's already very late. Now that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And yet these guys were getting irritated and exasperated, so much so that they actually came to the Lord Jesus and gave him an instruction. They told him what to do. Do do you ever do that? Do you ever tell Jesus what to do? Verse 36, send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now I wonder what tone of voice they used when they spoke to Jesus. Did they use a very gentle tone? Lord, would would you send the people away? Or did they say as an instruction, Lord, send the people away? Well, of course, we're not told what tone of voice they use, but maybe they'd been saying to one another, man, I'm hungry. Why is Jesus dealing with all these people? We're being obedient. He told us to come with them. I wish he'd stop and give us something to eat because I'm starving. It's time to quit. Why don't the people just leave? But what Jesus did and said, reveals his heart of love. Look at verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. If the disciples wanted to take charge, why didn't they provide dinner for the people? Well, that was preposterous. But what's interesting is this, that their sarcastic response is an indicator of their irritation. Now remember, they're speaking to Jesus. And how did they respond? They said, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? They were irritated with the suggestion that Jesus made. And in the end, as the passage tells us, it was Jesus who provided dinner for everybody. Well, okay. That's an interesting story, and we've read it many times. So what can we learn from that story? Well, I want to suggest that we can learn a number of things from that story. The first question we ask is, who gets irritable? And the answer, of course, is everyone, including people who are busy serving God. But Paul says... Love isn't easily angered. Love doesn't get irritated. And Paul was writing to the church. And the disciples had had the amazing experience of walking with Jesus, of listening to him talk and preach and teach. And yet, they got irritated. It was a failure to love. Everyone gets irritable and angry. And when? When do they get angry? Well, we get angry when we're tired and hungry, perhaps at the end of a busy day in which we have sought to serve the Lord faithfully. And maybe the enemy comes along and he just wants to try to get a little ground in our lives. So we'll just give us a nudge, touching a nerve, 
to make us irritable and angry. And when that happens, it's a failure to love. And how irritability treats people. How irritability treats people. Well, basically, irritability doesn't want anything to do with people. When the disciples were irritated about how long they had to wait for dinner, they wanted Jesus to send everybody away. And this was the, wasn't the only time the disciples tried to keep people away from Jesus. Do you remember the mothers wanted to bring their children to Jesus so he could bless them? We're not told, but I just imagine that the little children wanted to come to Jesus because he was a magnetic personality. And I can just imagine them climbing on his lap and running their fingers through his beard and him throwing back his head and and just laughing out loud because he loved the children. But as far as the disciples were concerned, the children didn't matter because Jesus was too important. And they, they, they hooshed the children away, but Jesus rebuked the disciples. When we're irritable, we want to get away from other people. Our family, perhaps, our neighbors, maybe our co workers, even if it means keeping other people away from Jesus. Isn't that a thought? If we're irritable, we can want other people out of the way, even if it keeps them away from Jesus. Now note, they expected people to use their own resources, tell them to go away to buy food. It never occurred to them to ask Jesus or to offer help. They simply sent the needy people away. You see, they cared less about the genuine welfare of people in need And more about the effect that other people's problems were having on them. The idea of sending the crowds away may have been proposed as a way of getting them something to eat. But surprise, surprise, it was also a way of getting the disciples what they wanted. A little peace and quiet before their dinner. And sometimes even our way of helping someone turns out to be a little bit selfish. Because that's how irritability treats other people. By putting what we want ahead of what they need, and if possible, by trying to avoid their needs altogether. And when that happens, the real problem is not other people. The real problem is us. That's what irritability does. And if we get irritated easily, it's an evidence of a heart that's lacking the love of Christ. Because love doesn't get irritated. How irritability responds to God. A failure to love people is actually a failure to love God. Remember we're told to To love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. What does that make? That's a cross, isn't it? And if we don't love one another, then we can't love God. The two are linked and we can't sever the link. Now the Lord wanted these folks to understand that he always has the resources to meet our needs. 
The disciples became irritated with our Lord and it damaged their relationship with him. And that was really sad. But what about, lastly, the example of Jesus? You see, it seems to me that everything Jesus did in Mark 6 is the exact opposite of everything the disciples did. Now, in all likelihood, Jesus was every bit as tired, if not more so, and hungry as his disciples were. He was often worn out by the exertions of his ministry. And by this time, he'd been teaching and healing people all day. And we remember, as we looked at the context of the chapter, that John the Baptist had been executed, his cousin. And Jesus would have been sad when that happened. And yet, rather than seeing the crowd and wishing them away and getting irritated when they refused to leave, Jesus blessed them. And he kept blessing them. And when we see him feeding the 5,000 with both daily bread and the word of God, we see what love can do when it doesn't get irritable. He drew the people to himself. Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And that word uh, compassion is really interesting. The, the Greeks used to believe that the seat of the emotions lived in the stomach. Did you ever get some really bad shocking news? If you ever get really bad news, where do you feel it first? Oh man, it gets you right in the gut. Isn't that right? Well, that was Jesus. Jesus looked at these people. And his feeling for them wasn't just, oh dear, these folks are, are, are hungry. He felt deep down that they had a need. That's why he exercised his compassion. He regarded their needs as being more important than his own refreshment. Because that's what love does. It lets the needs of others determine our agenda rather than our own selfish desires. And one of the reasons the disciples wanted to send the people away and why they spoke sarcastically to Jesus, and they did, he said, you give them something to eat. And they said, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? You can just sense their irritation coming out through that expression. They thought in terms of their own resources. And their own needs. But Jesus didn't. He trusted his Father and he thought about the needs of others first. And when people come to us with problems which are beyond us, questions which we don't know how to answer, expecting us to do what we don't have the resources to do, we can get irritated. But love takes what it has, lifts it to God and asks him to make our lives a blessing. And that's the way Jesus calls us to live. I just am so thrilled reading the account of the feeding of the 5,000, the little, little boy. They were looking around to see who had any resources. And the little boy, I've, I've, I've got my picnic lunch with me. I've got some rolls and two little fish. But it's, it's not a lot. But what did Jesus do? He took that little boy's lunch. He blessed it. And he broke it. He multiplied it. Can't Jesus do the same with the little that we have 
to give to him. Can't he take it, bless it, and maybe break it? That might hurt us a bit. And multiply it and make it such a blessing. Well, I think what's really wonderful is that Jesus doesn't get irritated with his disciples. He treated them with compassion. Verse 42, it says they all ate and were satisfied, even the grumpy disciples. Isn't that lovely? Jesus has the same love for all of his disciples. Even after all the times that I've been grumpy, sometimes my wife laughs at me and calls me Victor Meldrew. And I don't know whether to laugh or get irritated, but there you go, Victor Meldrew. Well, all the times I've been irritated or exasperated with God for what he hasn't done in my life, he never gets irritated with me or too tired to deal with me. But he keeps on loving me because all of my irritating sins are covered by the cross where Jesus died. And now we're called to love the way Jesus loved with a non-irritated, unangry love. Now, some folks are bound to irritate us, are bound to anger us, because the Bible describes Christians in the authorized version as God's peculiar people. And in my experience, there really are some peculiar people, and God has the really peculiar ones fairly evenly distributed amongst the churches. In order to keep us learning to love the way he has called us to love, so, when this week somebody comes up to you and says the very thing they ought not to say, or doesn't do the thing they ought to do, or, or does whatever it is they shouldn't do, and you're tempted to get irritable, what are you going to do? You see, love doesn't get irritable. It isn't easily angered. Now, I don't know about you, but my response to this is to say, Lord, I need you to help me. I need you to give me a bit more of your love. And I think that's a great prayer to pray because I think it's a prayer that Jesus will answer. Do you think so? I think so. Well, why don't we ask him just now to help us? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you for your mercy and grace for the love that you have poured down upon us. We are, in truth, amazed, O oh Lord, that you love us despite knowing all about us. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing that we can do that will cause you surprise because you know all things. You know the times when we've been irritated in this week that is past. You know, even as we pray, that some of those irritations are perhaps even being called to mind. And, oh Lord... We thank you that you never get irritated with us. We thank you for the example of Jesus and the love that he showed. This isn't something that we can do on our own, Lord. But we pray that you would draw alongside us and, and pour your love into our hearts that there might be an overflow. And that overflow uh, might just impact not only our lives, and the lives of our families, and the life of the church family, we pray that it might overflow into the community, that we might in truth be the aroma of Christ in this community, that something of the beauty of Jesus might be evident, 
So please, Lord, we really need you to help us. We ask these things as we say thank you in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.